Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Neuroscientist Professor Tracy Shores has dedicated her life to explaining how the mind and body respond to stressful events beyond our control. It's the subject of her new book, Everyday Trauma. She joined David Malone to tell us more. The title itself is really interesting. Because on the surface, everyday trauma, given what most people think about of trauma, sounds like military intelligence or jumbo shrimp. It just doesn't sound right. But that's part of the point of the book, isn't it? Is that we need to understand what trauma is differently. It's not just soldiers coming back from the war, is it? No, exactly. It's kind of unfortunate to some extent that the word trauma has been so kind of pigeonholed into this idea that has to be a war experience. I mean, that's historically based because some of the first you know, studies on, on trauma were done on, on soldiers who had returned from war and had been traumatized. And the word or the term post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, really arose you know, from those studies. So as a result, the word trauma has kind of got out into the into the world as this idea that you have to have this really horrendous experience. However, I also don't want to imply that any little stressful event or any little experience that causes some anxiety is is necessarily traumatic. So one of the things that I mean when I use the term everyday trauma is that we have these traumatic experiences. It could go from everything from from a, a war experience a rape, an earthquake, something that's discrete, you know, that happens in a, in a relatively short period of time. But what's really traumatizing is the thoughts and the memories that we engage in in the days after, right? So that's, to some extent, that's the everyday trauma, right? You have the traumatic experience, but then every day, or maybe not every day, but frequently, you go back and you think, ooh, that was horrible experience, and you rehearse the memory, you know, thereby making still more memories in your brain of that experience, thinking about it, wondering why it happened, uh, wishing it hadn't happened, maybe blaming yourself for it. So that's one version of everyday trauma. Then there's also another type that I I talk about in the book, and and I mean by that term, which is there are traumas, too, that linger. Like the pandemic is a great example. I mean, there's nothing great about the pandemic, but it is an example because it's gone on now for almost, you know, going on three years. It ebbs and flows, but it is, you know, overall quite has been quite traumatic for most people around the world. And so in that regard, it's also an everyday trauma that kind of accumulates too, because it's just, it's so unpredictable and we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. In other words, traumas aren't, can be something that creeps up on you gradually. It's sort of a, a more insidious kind of trauma. Exactly. I mean, other examples too, are like uh, a chronic illness mm-hmm. or um, which I guess relates to the pandemic to some extent, or taking care of somebody who's ill, uh, you know, discrimination, yeah, there's a lot of examples, I think, that we don't traditionally think of as traumatic, but, but, but they are. Mm. And, and that, that leads you on in the book to the point that 
because of this historical association between PTSD and soldiers and men, whereas you make the, the, the point, which I had not really appreciated at all, that a huge number of women are diagnosed with PTSD. Yes, um, PTSD is diagnosed like two or three times as frequently in women than it is in men. And that's partly one of the reasons I got, actually got interested in studying trauma and sex differences is because it is so prevalent. Now, there's a number of reasons why that is. Some of it is social. You know, women are feel like they have less control over their lives, and so they're maybe they're less likely to find ways to, to deal with the trauma, to respond to the trauma. There's biological differences that I've documented and others have documented in the stress response in females versus males. There's sexual and physical violence, which is also really common. Uh, like one in three women have that, which contributes to the trauma. So a number of reasons. Women are also more likely to talk about it. They're more likely to seek help. They're more likely to be diagnosed in part because they do seek help. So there's a number of reasons, but the data are, you know, are very clear that women are much more likely to be diagnosed. And, and the same, is that also true of depression generally? It is. And, and in fact, all this, almost all, I mean, there might be a few exceptions, but certainly most of the stress, what I would call stress-related mental illnesses are more prevalent in women than in men. So that would include depression, uh, almost all the anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, eating disorders are much more prevalent in women than in men. So yeah, in general, if you look at the, at the broad range of mental illnesses, uh, the ones that relate to stress and to some extent trauma are, are certainly more prevalent in women. Now, the, the, if you want to say there's a villain in your in your book. The, the villain really interesting is memories. You, you, you say quite early on, you say, look, we tell ourselves stories, but we mustn't be overcome with memories. And then later you talk about how we need to be able to live with memories, but, but, you know, but not have them take us over. There's something, it was, it was a very interesting, the way that you separate the person from the memories that that person has. And in a way you're saying, look, you, you can't just have a passive attitude to the memories that you accumulate. I thought, I'd not really come across that before. This, it was an interesting, mm -hmm. it's like we, we have to somehow, you're arguing, take charge of our memories or at least have a more active relationship with them. Is that right? Yeah, I do believe that. I actually believe that quite passionately. I think that, if people knew a little bit more about how memories are made in the brain, I mean, I'm not saying we know exactly how they're made, but we have some idea. Um, and that we know the brain makes them, <laughs> um, that it would be easier to, to kind of live alongside them. And, and the reason I think that is because they're so real. I, I mean, it's, um, it's to me, even after all these years of studying it, it's amazing that you could recreate an experience, something you did earlier today, something that happened to you 10 years ago, something that happened when you were a child, you could recreate that with protein, fat, <laughs> and electro, like electrophysiology. Like, that's amazing. Yes, it you genuinely know, is. <laughs> it is. I mean, and they're so real that when you have them, when you're in the story, you feel like they're real. And, you know, and even for me, and I know they're not real, that I'm not reliving the experience, even though I might have the feeling of it as well. So, you know, I kind of feel like it's important to just know that. And then that helps. It helps put it in perspective. Because if you ask people about their lives, trauma or not, the memories are what they cling to, right? They're the thing like, oh, you won't believe what happened to me when this happened or that happened. And, and knowing that that is just a representation in your brain, created by your brain, I think is useful. Like, I think it helps you say, well, yeah, that's, that's in my brain, but I don't have to cling to it 
as much as I might if I thought it was real. Like I was really reliving that experience. Mm -hmm. And yet, although you, as you say, they're not real, you're not actually reliving the experience. They are real in the sense that they have agency. They have a power over your life. So they're very real in that sense, aren't they? They are. And they should be. You know, sometimes people think about memories either wistfully. So they'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, I had a great vacation or when I got married or graduated or whatever. So it's a way of kind of reminiscing. Could also be, of course, negative. But the, but the real purpose of a memory is to plan for the future hmm. so that you don't, if it's negative, right, you don't get yourself in that situation again. Or if it's positive, you might gravitate towards experiences that are like that. So it's, it's, a, it's a learning process. The memory doesn't exist without learning. Now, one of the things that I, I, I also think would be useful is if we thought of these terms more as verbs. So in psychology, what we tend to do is we put nouns on these words, We're like this is a memory, you know, this is stress, this is trauma, this is fear. Those are nouns. And so as a result, people think, oh, I have this fear, you know, must be it's in my amygdala or my memories in my hippocampus, and <laughs> which is ridiculous, of course, but it's kind of how we think of it. But they're really verbs because it's always changing, right? Your brain is always changing. Your life is always changing. The way your brain responds to your life is always changing. And that's, that's a verb. So I, I do think that also would be helpful you know, for people to think of it more. Yes, the active side comes across very strongly in what you write. There's, a, there's a, a, a lovely bit where you say, trauma memories are powerful. They form quickly and can take over our thoughts and actions. And if they can't take over entirely, they will surely try. And the whole of that sentence is, is, is as you say, it's all about verbs. It's not just, here's a thing like a postcard. It's active and it's active in you. And, and, and if I've understood what you're saying is, in, in the book is, you, you have to get active yourself. <laughs> yeah. You have control over the memories that you form to some extent. Mm -hmm. Certainly how you interact with them. I think you do have control over that. So, for example, one of the things that I, I also try to get across is that it takes time. Like all these things that happen when we have a bad experience, or a good one for that matter, Take time. Now, it, it could be milliseconds, tens of milliseconds, hundreds of milliseconds. So it seems instantaneous. So if I bring up a memory now, you know, of my uncle, for example, who I really loved, that memory is, is tied to a feeling I have about him. So I have like this warm feeling in my body when I think of my, my uncle. And it seems all instantaneous, but it took time to go from a thought, like talking, saying, oh, I'm going to bring up this, my uncle, I retrieved that memory, then that memory is attached to my, the feeling in my body. And so realizing that it takes time allows you to then not necessarily prevent the feeling, but realize that this, hmm. that memory now is going to generate a feeling. And I, I can follow it, right? I can follow the memory to the feeling, or I could maybe stop it, or I could generate another memory that doesn't have that feeling. I mean, we have time between a thought, a memory, and a feeling to change it. Okay. This seems like a good moment to bring up a term which is really central to the book which was new to me rumination and if i've understood what you've written it's, it's absolutely central to, to everything that you're saying that, that, so tell us what you mean by rumination what it is and why it's so important okay yeah so rumination to ruminate means to i guess the word kind of arose from the the idea of chewing over and over like a cow chewing on its cud Chewing, you know, so much, but the nutrients are gone. It's just still chewing, chewing on, on the cud. And, and I think that's a really good way of thinking about rumination, ruminating thoughts, because they're thoughts that we have over and over. So that they are, they're repetitive. So they're a, they're a form of memory because you repeat them. 
they're autobiographical. So they're always about yourself somehow about your life and how you interact with other people or what you've done in the past. They often have memories attached to them. Not necessarily. They're usually negative. They're usually bad. They're usually associated with some regret or some guilt or something like kind of woulda, shoulda, coulda thoughts. Oh, if only that hadn't happened. If I hadn't been at that party, then this wouldn't have happened. Those kind of thoughts. And they go on and on and they've lost their value. So at least initially, a ruminating thought has, has some value. There's been some theories that it's used to kind of uh, prepare yourself really for something that could happen, to kind of analyze, to be alert, think about what just happened. But then after a while, it becomes like a habit and you just keep doing, going back to the same thought over and over again even though it's not really, really helping you. And, you know, there's several reasons why they're particularly damaging for people. Uh, One is that you're not present in this moment, right? So if I'm ruminating and thinking about, you know, why did I do this? Why did that happen? I can't be, be present now. And that could be dangerous, actually. You could imagine, you know, I wrote in in the book about a woman who was ruminating, but she sat on the beach and she wasn't really watching her children who were playing in, in in the rough surf. So, you know, you can imagine negative things arising while you're ruminating. And one of the things that that we've actually documented in a lot of our studies is that they're also highly associated with other symptoms like depression, anxiety, stress. Mm. That makes sense. If you're just playing over something negative over and over in your head, like if only I'd done this, it's a terrible that I didn't. I mean, I can see that, that it's, I can't see anything good that comes of that, just running it over and over if it's slightly negative. Yeah, exactly. And and, And and you're very common. I'm sorry, sorry, they're really common in women too. So that's another reason why maybe women are more prone to these other stress-related symptoms. Why do you think it's more common in women? That's hard to say. I mean, I I also think it's partly because of all the same factors I mentioned before, because of lack of control. So one theory is that, you know, women feel like they don't have as much control over their lives. So they end up kind of like just ruminating about it to some extent, rather than actually having some action. There's some hormonal studies. There's some studies suggest that, you know, that, that ruminations kind of are tied to some hormonal changes. Um, they're very tied to depression and women are more likely to, to be depressed. You know, there's, a, there's some debate in the field about whether or not rumination is a, is, is a state or a trait. So for, for many years, people thought, well, rumination is kind of a trait, meaning you, are, you just tend to be a ruminator. Like you're almost like born with it. <laughs> and if you're not a ruminator, then you're not. I think more recently, and certainly the data that I've collected suggests it's more of a, it's also a state. Mm. So you can kind of be almost encouraged or put in a situation where you would be likely to to ruminate. Um, I think that's a more hopeful way of thinking about it. Well, it seems to fit because, I mean, you see people slip into it, people who have been active and vital and something happens and very gradually, you see them becoming, as you say, less present in, in each moment and yeah. more sort of uh, trapped in some, some set of thoughts which have long since passed, but they're, they're just going round and round in them. And, and, and I think in the book you, you say that the, the difference between a rumination and a, a memory is that the rumination doesn't have any action. It has no intent to change. Is right. that what you mean when you say that it's lost its vitality, that here you are remembering something, but not because you think, right, now I've remembered it, I'll do it differently. You never get to that last step. You're just, just remembering it. Right. It just becomes like, like a habit. Yeah, and, habit. and, you know, there's even some data, suggestive data, um, which I actually kind of plan on investigating a little bit more in, in the near future, but about the networks in the brain that are involved in rumination. Because as you might imagine, if you're ruminating, you're kind of using a select 
network, mostly, you know, related to these autobiographical memories in large part, maybe tied to, to some negative feelings. And you're just kind of going over those same networks, you know, those same pathways over and over again, where maybe other networks that you could engage in that require some kind of presence, concentration, you know, effort, whatever it is, those aren't being used either because you're, you know, you're back in these other kind of repetitive uh, networks. And so it gets back to something you said earlier, because as you said, it, when you run through those memories, you're also recreating the feeling. So if it's a negative memory, I presume that then you're going to recreate at least some echo of the negative feelings that were with them. And that's just to, to, to re constantly recreate a slightly negative feeling. I mean, that, I can't see how that helps at all. That, that in itself would make you depressed, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's why it's hard to know what causes what, right? Do ruminations cause depression? Does depression make you ruminate? I mean, they're so tightly connected. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you wanna tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. One of the things that I did talk about it a bit in the book, and I think it's also important to kind of think about is, so when you have, when you bring back a memory from the past, obviously, you basically make another memory. So in the example of, of my uncle, I bring back this memory of my uncle who I loved and, and I'm bringing it back in this moment while I'm talking to you. And now I've made more memories of him because he's tied now to this moment. And in, in memory research, you know, we call that like either updating the memory or editing it. But in essence, basically you're making more of these associations with that, with that memory. So if you think about it in terms of rumination, that's also happening. Because when you're ruminating, you know, you're bringing back these memories, again, most of them negative, with some feelings that are usually negative too. And now you're still making yet, you know, more of these memories. Right, so it starts to colonize you in a way. You, you, yeah. Right, okay, that makes a lot of sense. So by doing that, you're just filling your mind up with, yeah, copies, I mean, of copies of copies of the, of the original negative. Yeah, physically. I think it's really good for people to realize there's a, there's a physical manifestation of a memory. You know, it's not like it, it's there. It's in your brain. And sometimes even if you can't necessarily uh, access it, it's, it's there somewhere. And so, yeah, the idea that you're making more of them means that they're actually there, you know, somewhere in your brain. Yes. And, and th that notion, as you say, that the physicality the, uh, of how memories are made and how they is key to what you then go on to suggest is a way forward for people. Because you talk about that we do create the possibility of new memories through changes, cellular changes in the, the part of the brain, the hippocampus, so that and you, you relate it to concentrating. And, and, and thinking about things that the mind is ready to learn, as you put it, isn't it? Because it's, it physically is in the neurons making little, little explorations ready to connect with another neuron. Yeah. It want, it, I don't know, wants, maybe that's too, <laughs> but I mean, it is set up for learning. It's always learning. And, and sometimes I think people also use the word learning very selectively. So they think, oh, I learn in school. Right. Or I, you know, I study learning in the laboratory, but, but in reality, we're always learning, even if we're learning not to respond, 
You know, so in the case of, of, of depression, for example, or even responses to trauma, many people avoid life, right? They start to avoid situations that remind them of what happened, or in the case of depression, they just don't want to interact. And so they're, they're learning to avoid life. And, and as a consequence, then it kinda, it's kind of a, a vicious circle to some extent, because the less you interact with the world, the less stimulation your brain is getting, the less likely you're gonna learn mm -hmm. to want more, you know, to want to learn more because it's safe. It's, you know, feels safer to kind of, to kind of shut down and, and avoid what could be frightening. But to some extent it's, it's, uh, you know, it's making things worse. Yes. Because if I've understood what you've been arguing, what you'll be left with is just the repetitive echo of whatever it was that, that made you want to withdraw from the world in the first place. So there's nothing else to go on. Is there just that to run it over and over? Yeah. Now, what was what's not interesting about the book is you you run through the examples of what the problem is, and you talk about how the how the, the mind, the brain, does actually learn, and then you come up with a surprisingly concrete suggestion for how you can tackle this, and it is it all hinges on this connection with the brain and the body that we've talked about already. That you have a thought, you have a memory, which is obviously up here but it intimately connected with the body because it, it recalls a feeling. Because there's a lovely bit in the book where you say, look, you have a memory, but it's what makes a traumatic memory traumatic is, is the awful feelings that come with it. And they don't come from your brain. They come from your body. And that was such a nice mm -hmm. thing to suddenly make the reader sit back and go, oh, yes. And that is imp important, isn't it? Yeah, it is very important. And it becomes very important for how to tackle it. So, I mean, tell us about the, this program that you've suggested, because it does combine the, the sort of exercising, you know, an aspect of doing something with the body and something to do with the mind. And it's very clear and simple and concrete. So do you mind telling us a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. I'd like to. Um... So this program, I call it a brain fitness program. It's not really a therapy per se, but it's called MAP training. MAP stands for mental and physical. You know, it took me a long time to kind of hone in on what would be the most useful activities. Having, you know, studied a lot of aspects of stress and trauma and learning, and I really did look at everything that would be possible. And there are a few things that kind of came out as being really useful for people. One of them is meditation. So the, the, the MAP or the M in MAP stands for mental training, which is in this program, meditation. And then the physical part is aerobic exercise. Now, both of those activities are really good for the brain. I mean, there's other things that are good for the brain. I was thinking about this last night, you know, like taking a walk. Well, that's probably good for the brain. Or going seeing a friend is good for the brain, I suppose. It's hard to study those things. But um, these activities are effortful. You know, they require concentration. They require effort. So what I didn't want to do is propose some kind of, you know, intervention or brain fitness program that was just kind of more of the same, more of the kind of like, eat well, sleep well, and then you'll be happy. Like we've seen a lot of that, right? <laughs> yes. And it's, it's fine. I'm not, you know, saying it doesn't, it isn't good to do that, but I wanted something more specific. And meditation came to me. I actually not, I was not a person into meditation. In fact, I thought it was probably too soft really for me. But a friend of mine, when I was thinking about devising this program, suggested it. And I was like, well, I shouldn't really say, negative things about it. I've never done it. And so I went to do it actually at a, at a group uh, at Rutgers University, and they were in the basement of some building sitting in complete silence for hours. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so hard. <laughs> like, it's really hard to do that. And, but interesting, you know, really interesting because you realize when you meditate 
in complete silence, particularly with other people, but even by yourself, how distracted your brain is, how it wants to run off and ruminate and bring up memories and think about the future and how hard it really is to concentrate on this moment. So I became kind of a, a believer, I guess you could say, in meditation. Certainly, I agree that it's a form of mental training. It's really difficult to do. And then it's 30 minutes of meditation, 20 minutes just sitting, 10 minutes of slow walking, which is kind of similar in principle. You just walk really slowly. And when your mind starts to wander, you bring your attention back into your, to your feet. And then we immediately follow it with 30 minutes of aerobic exercise, meaning oxygen. Aerobic means oxygen. So in order to get oxygen going in your body and in your brain, you need to get your heart rate up. Um, and sometimes people don't know this, but the brain uses like 20% of the oxygen that you breathe in goes to your brain. Even though the brain only weighs, you know, a couple percentages of the body, of your total body weight. So the, the brain loves oxygen. It needs it. It needs it to, to create memories, thoughts, feelings, the whole, you know, shebang. And that's associated with a fast heart rate. So in this practice, what's happening is the heart is very slow during the meditation, right? Your heart is beating very slow generally. And maybe you're bringing up thoughts about the past, traumatic memories, whatever, that would normally cause your heart rate to increase. But now you associate these memories or thoughts with the relaxed state. Then you immediately go into this aerobic state where your heart is beating really fast. Again, something you often associate with fear and, and trauma. But now maybe you're, I don't know, having fun or certainly exerting yourself and not thinking about the past because you can't really if you're really aerobically exercising. So yeah, it's, I think it really helps people partly because of that because you're learning to, to dissociate, you know, a beating heart that you have with fear from fear mm -hmm. and the, you know, calmness that you might associate with being sleepy or tired or depressed now with actually, you know, learning something about mm -hmm. your, your own brain. But then there's also um, a sort of a, a, a deeper, more, scientific part of it i mean based on the cell the work that you a lot of the work you've done because when you're engaging in the mental activity the meditation the, there is a physical change that happens in that the that the cells that, that um, allow us to encode memories in the hippocampus they do start to put out more um spines i think you called them so in other words yes you will get an meditation or any kind of difficult mental work is going to tell the um, cause your mind your brain to say right we're going to have to do some learn some learning here and it starts to physically do that doesn't it the neurons start to say right we need to reach out to each other and make a new pattern because tracy is making us learn something yes but then and this was the lovely bit you said yeah but when you do those studies not all of those cells or the, those new connections will survive and not even and new brain cells that may come into being, they won't survive. So when you're getting, doing all the exercise, that increases the oxygen and that creates the, the, the cells being created. Is that right? So just the physical business of doing stuff, but then how many of them survive these new connections depends on the meditation. Have I got that the right way around? Yes. It's, you know, it's a little hard to know in, in humans, yeah, you know, I think sometimes when people talk about the brain, sometimes they don't always realize the limitations that we have as neuroscientists. So we can't really count cells in a human, you know, while they're doing something. <laughs> it's just impossible. So, I mean, all the studies that are done in humans are usually post-mortem, meaning after someone has died, they donate their brain and then you know, and obviously the cells are no longer alive. And so there's limitations there. And so most of the 
these kind of conclusions are kind of translated basically from these kind of animal models, typically rats and mice. But yeah, in the 1990s, late, yeah, mid to late 90s, there was this discovery that I was, you know, somewhat involved in. There was a, a person, her name's Elizabeth Gould, and she's a neuroscientist, and she was a friend of mine, is a friend of mine, and she had discovered these, that new neurons were generated in a part of the brain known as the hippocampus. And that was quite a, you know, it was a pretty shocking discovery because up until that point, we didn't think that the brain really made new neurons. And we subsequently did some studies showing that, that they're involved in learning. So they certainly didn't think, you know, new neurons would be involved uh, in learning. Now, there is controversy to some extent still about how many of these new neurons are made in humans and, you know, can we take what's what we know about them in a laboratory mouse and a rat and then apply it to people? But I think it's pretty safe to say that these cells are very responsive to our environment. They're very responsive to learning, and they're certainly very responsive to exercise, aerobic exercise. So if you put a, a mouse and a running wheel or a rat, they'll run. They love to run, not like humans. They just love it. <laughs> they love to exercise, and they will make more of these cells in their hippocampus. Just automatically? Yeah. Hmm. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And there's some studies in humans that kind of approach that. They had people run on treadmills um, who don't normally exercise, and they found more blood flow into that region of the hippocampus. So there's some, you know, indirect evidence that it would happen in humans too. But then once the cells are there, and this is the part of the studies that I was involved in, once the cells are, are born or generated, then a lot of them die. So if you go back and look two, three weeks later after they're born, a lot of them are, are gone. Right. Which may kind of explain why we didn't see them always, right, to begin mm -hmm. with. But what we determined is if, if, in this case, rats learn something new that's effortful, that requires concentration, then the cells survive. Right. So that's, that's the, the connection between the aerobic exercise and the mental activity. One exactly. gives you this, the sheer energy, the sheer you know sugar coursing through your head and 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 oxygen allowing you to burn it all and build stuff and create new cells and new connections. So your 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 brain is ready to learn. Physically, you've got it to the point where it's got everything it needs to learn. But if it doesn't, if you if you are not then presented with something to learn, then it's like calling the fire brigade. And nothing happens. They just go back in again. And you go, well, yeah. well, never mind. <laughs> yeah it's like it's use it or lose it right yes which is one of the chapters in the book so yeah. so so that's why you've got the two parts yeah. you know the, the the physical activity the mental activity because you want people to be primed and ready to learn something new something that's not depressive and not just ruminating you know not just making a copy of something negative but and this new thought is going to survive it's going to it's going to be printed over the top of all those negative memories. Yeah. Yeah, it has a substrate, you know, like, because if you think about it in a physical sense, you have to have a substrate. Hmm. You know, you have to bring in the equipment so then you can use the equipment. And if it's, the equipment's not there, then, you know, so you can imagine, you know, people often ask me, what they can do to, to change their brain. And first of all, the brain's always changing. so pretty much anything you do will, will change your brain. But I think what's important when you, when you really think about these kind of practices and these kind of ideas is that they're sustained over time. Hmm. Because, you know, just going out and running, like if I 
go out and run around the block a few times right after this uh, interview. You know, am I going to make that many new neurons? <laughs> Probably not. Like it needs to be a part of, of your life. You know, it has to be enough to overcome maybe what you haven't been doing. You know, I hear a lot of people, particularly about the pandemic, talking about, you know, how isolated they become and, and depressed, really sad and, and isolated and lonely and, and, and the data bear that out. You know, there's a lot of studies now showing a lot of depression and anxiety in, in people and, and trauma related symptoms. And part of the problem is that it's been going on for so long, mm. you know, so if this had happened over the course of a week or a month, okay, fine. We could probably easily kind of bounce back and recover. But when you're talking months and years, that's a lot of downtime for the brain. You know, that's a lot of mm. loss of substrate in a way. And so to overcome that, yeah, you really have to put in, like, it's hard. It's hard to, it, one of the things that I found the most difficult, you know, now that I try to get people to do these activities is they'll do it for a little while, but then after a few weeks, they're like, oh, no, I'm not doing it anymore. It's too hard. <laughs> you know, so that's, that's the hard part is making yourself do it, even though you know you will feel better. Yes, it, it is that it's, it's fully deciding that rather than be at the mercy of your memories, just that you're going to take charge of them. In, in other words, you're going to have memories. You're going to make memories. You're going to get in the positive frame of mind and then remember being in a positive frame of mind. And it seems like if you don't, if you don't take charge of your memories, then your memories will take charge of you. Yeah, yeah. Which is not good if, you're, if, if what's running round and round is a negative memory. Yeah, that's why I think it, you know, that's why I kind of had this idea. I thought, well, if people really knew a little bit more about how memories are made and how they're tied to our feelings and our thoughts, then they, they would take more control over them. Mm. Yes. And as you say, there is that moment of time. What was it you said that there's, there is thinking and then the, the memory and the feeling, mm -hmm. each of those takes time. And so then you turn the sentence around and say, so there is time to do something. Yeah, there is time. And you, 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 there's a quote quite later on in the book from a, 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 a single mother. I think it was a homeless mother who was very depressed. And I think the quote was that she said when she'd begun to do your program, you know, that she'd never thought about having a thought. They just happened. Yeah. But your, you, what you'd been suggesting had had made her focus in on that moment when it was happening so they could see the negative thought rising up and do something about it yeah yeah she said i i used to have thoughts or i had thoughts and i would just act on them i never thought about a thought <laughs> as if i had no yeah no choice really because again you know they do seem real they do seem like you have to act on them but but you don't yeah and you also told a lovely, well, it's a, a story about your father mm. and, and, and what your mother did to help him. Would, I mean, you've written about it, so I, I presume you wouldn't mind telling this briefly. No, I don't mind. Thank you. Um, my dad would probably like it in a way. He, <laughs> um, my dad was, um, my dad was kind of, I, I, I guess at the time when he was, when I was young, I wouldn't have necessarily called him depressed, but he wasn't like an, a terribly exuberant person, but he had a good life. But he retired early, although he was in his 60s, so it doesn't seem that old now, but at the time he seemed very old. <laughs> and um, he had a really busy career. He was an engineer. He liked work. He hardly ever took vacations. And so I came home from college and he had retired and he was just sitting in his chair like all day long with his head in his hands. And I mean, I just never had seen him like this. And my mother was very, you know, worried because she thought he might do something drastic. And he'd had a bad childhood. His father had committed suicide. So uh, 
which he didn't really talk about. You know, I think he came from that older generation, the war generation, the depression generation. So he didn't really talk much about, about his father committing suicide and how he found That didn't him. mean the memory wasn't there, though. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he thought about it a lot. And it might have even contributed a bit to, to his depression, I would think. But yeah, my mother, rather than just, you know, sitting around, letting it get worse and, you know, who knows what could have happened. She was like, okay, we're going to move to California. Um, I was out there. My brother was out there. They rented a place on the beach uh, where they could, my dad could go down there and do some fishing. And I think she just knew, like she had, had to do something. And he also probably knew too, you know, that that would help him. So it was a really good example of, you know, providing an enriched environment, like kind of forcing, right, forcing him out of this kind of cycle where he was just doing nothing, but, you know, lamenting the fact that he retired. And yeah, he, he had, I mean, he was, he was never going to be like, you know, super no, but, jolly but, but, guy, but he definitely got pretty happy or better anyway. But I mean, that's a, the, the story of your, your father is, is quite a common one. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those cliches that you had a lot of depression in, in uh, I suppose it would have been men in the past, but now it must be men and women who've had a busy life. And suddenly at 65, the boss says, well, goodbye. You give them a little gold clock and then they stop. And they're just left with whatever was in the past. And, yeah. And, and it is a serious mental health problem, certainly has been amongst men. And I, it, it must now be amongst women because they've gone through that same, you know, having been doing all that work and then suddenly, you know, you're chucked out. Yeah, and haven't really, you know, he didn't have hobbies. He wasn't a super social person. So he didn't have all those outlets that maybe other people would have had. You know, I've been thinking a lot with the pandemic and so many people retiring kind of abruptly and, in, this mo in a moment of haste or maybe, maybe, you know, some suffering for sure. But, you know, I wonder sometimes how that's going to play out. If people are, are really going to be satisfied, you know, in that, in that new world that doesn't involve work. And uh, yeah. I'm sure it's variable, but um, it's, it's, I'm sure it's kind of good and bad. I, I feel like, you know, the pandemic too made a lot of people kind of face their own mortality and maybe think, well, is, is there something else, you know, that I, that I could be doing mm. that would be more stimulating and more exciting? And that's not bad to, to go through that process. No, indeed. Do you mind if we take some questions? Because there's a lot of them. Okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, Stella says, the discussion section about managing memories, is this akin to actively curating memories? and doing it to improve our overall health without creating false memories? Not necessarily. You know, one of the things that I, I, I did try to get across in the book was that there's no, like, one approach, right? There's no one skill. I'm not trying to say um, we should suppress our memories, nor, nor do I think we should, you know, go over them uh, repetitively or change, try to change them but rather just become more aware of them. Mm. It's almost like you could see them from the outside, you know, kind of step out of them, like you would have thought too, mm. and just kind of step out and then watch them. But don't necessarily try to, to change them. Yeah, but you've got, they're not just, there's some distance between you and them. So you've got some kind of agency you can, it's like a picture in a book. It's not you. You're not in it. You can you can look at it. Exactly. Okay. Sanjay asks, how do you deal or manage the bereavement of a parent, especially when it's been weighing you down for a while? This this person feels that you know this caused him to have panic attacks he's never had before. So I suppose bereavement certainly must count as a trauma. It does. It does. In fact, it it wasn't you know, as recognized as it is now, you know, within in the clinical field of psychology, how, how traumatic it can be. And I'm sure, oh my gosh, you know, how many people are, are having a lot of problems now if they lost someone from, due to COVID. 
You know, one of the things that, that I, I actually had it in, in the book and then I, I ended up taking it out for various reasons. But when my, my mother died, I had a really strong memory of her the day she died in the hospital. And I couldn't get that memory out of my head. Like I just couldn't, like no matter what I did, anywhere I went for months really uh, after that, that memory would come up. And now it's been like 10 years and I still have it. You know, I still have that memory of that day. But the other memories of her that I have like throughout my whole life have like come up again, right? They're all like interwoven with this other memory. And so I can't really access that memory as much as I used to be able to. And so I guess one thing I would say is like, with time, and I don't think time heals all wounds because it doesn't necessarily, but it does fade. You know, the, the, the intensity of that memory and particularly the association with the feeling. Like, so for example, now, if I, if I bring up that memory of my mother, it used to go right to the feeling and I would cry. But now I can kind of stop it. Like even now talking to you, I can kind of, I can see it would go there <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to let it because I don't need to. Mm -hmm. And I, ha I have some like distance from it. I don't know if that helps, but I, I do think, you know, knowing that it will get better with time, even though I know people tell you this, but there's a, there's a physiological reason why it gets better with time because the other memories, you know, come back yeah. into conscious awareness. Pat Dale asks, how do you support a person who has eating disorder? It's a very big question. Do you think your mental training would help someone with an eating disorder or would help the person who's helping them? Um, I don't really know. You know, we've done quite a few clinical studies with this program and I haven't ever conducted a study. So I kind of always hesitate to say for sure. But on the other hand, I think it could help just about anyone. And, you know, because eating disorders are oftentimes fueled by anxiety, you know, they have a lot of anxiety inherent in them. I do think it, it could help, hmm. but I, I don't have any data. There's an interesting question from um, Vicky, who says, she, she makes the point that some people have events which they experience as traumatic, even though others would say, oh, no, that's not traumatic. Um, do you agree that? just because someone else says, oh, that's not traumatic, that if it feels traumatic to you, that, that it is, or how do you deal with that? Yes, I totally agree. In fact, I hope I made that clear early on when we were talking, but if I didn't, I meant to, is that it's really the response to the event, right? It's the response that matters, not the actual event. Yeah. You know, and there's so many examples of this. I mean, people are exposed to all kinds of uh, experiences and one responds one way and another responds the other. I, I opened the book with the story of this couple who was in a terrifying car wreck. And they were a married couple and they both had to watch somebody, a child die in front of them. And so they were both quite traumatized, but they responded very differently. And the, and the man was able to break the windshield and, and get his wife and him out of the car. And, but later, you know, she really had a lot of trauma, a lot of trauma symptoms, PTSD that, that was lingering, whereas he was, you know, able to recover. So I thought that was a, like an example of like two people exposed to the same experience, but the responses were, were quite different. So yes, it's, it's the response that matters. And it gets back to what you were saying about control, that if you feel that there's no response you can make, that you have no ability, then that, that, that itself is debilitating. Whereas you know, what you're suggesting in this program is here is something you can do to take some control. Yeah. Yeah. Lear like learn that you have some control. A couple of people have, have raised the question, if it's bad to ruminate, when it's negative thoughts, is it good to ruminate on positive ones or is just rumination a bad idea whether it's good? 
<laughs> I mean, in a very general sense, the word ruminate could be about positive things. It just so happens that most people don't ruminate on positive as much as they do the negative. So in, a, in, a, in clinical psychology, rumination is generally considered negative. Hmm. But yeah, if you could, but it's not then a rumination in a way, if you're kind of forcing yourself, because hmm. a rumination is more, it's almost involuntary. It's, it's just a habit. It's just hmm. going around and around. And presumably from what you said, even if you could ruminate on a positive thought, that's still not as good as making new thoughts, exactly. new, new memories, positive, yeah. genuinely, originally new ones, not just recycling an old one. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I, I kind of touched on a bit at the end is that there's different tricks, mental skills that you can learn. You know, one would be to replace a negative thought with a positive one. Uh, another would be to try to suppress a memory or a feeling. Another would be to uh, just let it go. And these are all skills that have been around really for thousands of years. You know, the, mm. people have been, been practicing them in one way or another in meditation circles, but also, of course, in, in modern psychology. And they're all kind of similar. You know, they're all kind of based on this basic premise that you can be aware of your own thoughts and memories, and you can manipulate them to some extent. And so I guess what I, I would say is that there's no magic pill or magic potion. It's really like learn as many of these skills as you possibly can. Hmm. And then when the moment arises, you could use them. You could say, well, okay, now I'm gonna replace that negative thought with a positive one. But maybe the situation would be such that you just wouldn't wanna bring up the feeling, like I said earlier about my mm. mother. So it's more about being uh, aware of this moment enough so with enough information, and enough skill that you can kind of choose what you're going to do. Mm. It's an, okay. Here's another interesting question, an anonymous question. It says, how do you help support awareness of someone who sees their difficulties only as a set of physical symptoms that need to be fixed. And have, they've never talked about their feelings. So in other words, they, they don't see it as, as a question of memories or of, dis, of rumination, but they're, they're convinced that their problem is just physical. How, would you, how do you deal with that? How do you begin to get that person to think that it's maybe not just a physical thing? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that is hard, I have to say. You know, one of the things I, I actually teach about mental illness uh, at the university, and so just the other day I was talking about diagnosis mm. and of mental illnesses. And, and one of the things that you have to, to do as a clinician is rule out a physical basis. And that sounds easy, right? You have to say, well, this can't be due to some kind of medication you're taking or some kind of disease that you might have. Um, but in practice, it's, it's virtually impossible, right? Because you, you couldn't rule out every possible physical ailment. And, and not only that, it kind of brings back this idea that, that psychology is, is separate from our biology, hmm. which it isn't. So, I mean, I don't have the answer to that. I do think that becoming more aware of memories and thoughts and that they are physical. They're just as physical as, you know, what's going on in your liver or your kidney. It's just that they're going on in, in your brain. And that's, that's okay. Doesn't make them less important. Doesn't make them more important. It just makes it part of your body, part of the system yes. that keeps us but, alive. And, but allied to that is realizing that they're not passive things in themselves, that memories aren't just like they can have an effect on you. And yes. therefore you need to sometimes try and have an effect on them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Tracy, they're not elusive. They're, they're real in the sense that they're, they're made, yeah, they're made by elements right? Elements in your body, elements in the universe that create these experiences. They're not, they're not supernatural. 
I think sometimes people have a feeling that like memories and thoughts and psychology in general is like somehow supernatural. It's not. It's really hard to explain <laughs> and to understand, but it's not supernatural. Right. And if it's not supernatural, then it's natural. And if it's natural, you've got the chance of being able to do something about it. Yeah. On that hopeful note, I'm afraid we have to stop there. It's been it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you. Um, and um, in, in case people want to that's the book and it does have a very practical guide in it um, Tracy it's been great thank you very much for chatting thank you thank you so much thank you everyone thank bye you. this episode of the podcast starred Tracy Shores and was presented by David Malone Tracy's book Everyday Trauma is out now the episode was produced by Luke Naylor Perrett and edited by John Doughty the show is made by me and Esme Bright, and we have help from Nicole Wong. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.